0: I originally gave a a version of this talk in Rome um, at a conference on public happiness. Public happiness as a uh, term of art has an 18th century origin, uh, but a a particular twist or spin put on it uh, by uh, Neapolitan philosophers uh, of the 18th century, which I'll mention a little bit later in. That is why I mentioned the term public happiness, and I mean it to distinguish from uh, subjective and objective well-being, which are often called happiness in uh, social science study. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, My approach is um, very anecdotal for the most part, and I'm going to start out with um, what I call anecdotal anthropology that perhaps will be very familiar in some form to many of you who are already uh, living here in Japan for quite a while. Uh, Then, actually, I've probably changed some of these, but I'm going to get into what I mean by public happiness, how it is different from uh, social capital and other forms of well-being that are measured, and talk about a different way of treating it, which I propose to be more qualitative than the usual approaches to happiness taken uh, by governments up till now. So let's start with some anecdotal anthropology. I'm going to be talking mainly about the two places where I live. One is Tokyo, where we are now. The other is Morioka, which is the capital of Iwate Prefecture. It's a town of about 300,000 people or a city. And uh, we live there several uh, months of the year. Um, This, of course, is Tokyo. And I'm going to focus on my neighborhood, which is actually quite close to here. It's near uh, Kagurazaka. this is an aerial view of my neighborhood, which is extremely urbanized, as you can see. In one direction, we have the whole campus of uh, Dainihong Insatsu. My, my residence is up there where the red arrow is. We have this giant campus here of uh, Dainipong printing, and then the defense ministry is very close here, operating most of the land. In the other direction... Uh, you can see this doesn't look like a small village or anything like that. It's highly urbanized, very close to uh, the Imperial Palace, Idabashi, Ichigaya, and so on. You, you folks all know that, uh, that neighborhood. And I'm going to focus especially on this little area uh, in the orange box, which you can see here. So this is, my, this is the commercial neighborhood around the corner from my house, basically. And I'm going to compare this to, I'll give you a little bit of my history. I grew up in New York, uh, in the suburbs. I lived in Manhattan for a while. Then I moved out to California, which I I, I never regretted doing. I lived in Los Angeles for about 10 or 11 years, and then up in Silicon Valley, which is also where I went to law school. Uh, And I thought, man, leaving New York was one of the best things I ever did, because the people are so much nicer in California. Okay, so that's my baseline uh, for this. So the first slide compares how many restaurant or food shops know the preferences of my wife and me when we go into them. We've been living at this time about three years. Now it's coming up on four years. Okay, just on this one block, 15 establishments know what we expect. They know what our regular thing is, or they come in and they tell my wife, your husband isn't going to like this, but he will like that, that kind of stuff. In comparison, when I lived in Silicon Valley, there were maybe three shops, okay? And I lived there for 10 years. In LA, zero. Even though there was like one frozen yogurt shop I went into on a at least weekly basis, they never knew what it was that I liked, and I always ordered roughly the same thing. Okay, here's another one. How many shops are places where we say hello to each other, even if we meet each other on the street? other no, words, not they say hello when you come into the shop, but you see each other on the street, or even in another part of Tokyo, okay? 23 in my, just in this one little neighborhood. This doesn't include all the other neighborhoods that I go to a lot, or that my wife goes to a lot. Just in this neighborhood, 23 places. Silicon Valley, two. So there is a level of neighborhood cohesion that is really different, even from what I thought was one of the best places in the United States. Here is one other. We have a, um, of those places where we say to each other, there is also a kind of agrarian economy of gifts. So... Uh, Let's see, the the Italian restaurant loaned me some herbs once. We we were out of rosemary. We could run to the restaurant, and they just gave us a huge bunch of rosemary. Uh, There is a wagashiya, a traditional sweets shop. We give them apples. They give us persimmons. They give us oranges. We exchange all kinds of things. We give them traditional sweets from Morioka when we go up to visit there. We get all kinds of gifts in return. The same thing with the local Unagi restaurant, where they also... If I go in and I say, oh, my wife is feeling a little sick today, they come by our house with huge plates of stuff, uh, soup and everything for her to feel better. We have uh, sobaya over here where we, again, exchange fruits. And one time they gave us this gigantic cabbage that we had no idea what to do with. And later they told us, actually, we're a family of seven people. We can't go through that big cabbage in one week. So uh, we're just two. Uh, I don't know what we were supposed to do with it. But this is quite unusual compared to, say, the United States. Here is another example from uh, Morioka, again, of this kind of gift economy. This little low residence that actually L's around behind this building is where my uh, mother-in-law and my parents-in-law live. Okay? My mother-in-law is from Morioka. This is a fire station that's been there a couple years that opened just two doors away. Last winter was extremely icy in Morioka. And as my mother-in-law was coming back from the supermarket over, over there, she slipped in the snow right there and broke her wrist, actually. Immediately, she got first aid. The guys came out of the firehouse, gave her first aid. So a couple days later, she went back with two bottles of sake, there's from a local uh, uh, maker. And the next day, they came back with a gigantic hunk of venison. To her. Okay? So she, it it so happened that my father in law, who is a Bengoshi, he's about 80 years old, but he still practices law, many, many years ago had gotten a client off a murder charge. And his brother has remained eternally grateful. So the brother, through the years, comes by and periodically brings legs of cow or various fish. This this time he had brought a huge flounder, hirame, to my parents' house. So my mother-in-law took this flounder and brought it over to the fire station. The next day, or later that afternoon, the fire station brought back half the flounder, sliced for sashimi, because they knew my mother-in-law could not slice anything so delicately because she had broken her wrist. And then it ended there, at least for the time being. But this kind of gift economy, again, I don't think you're going to find it so much in the United States, and certainly not pinging and ponging back and forth as much as it did. But there's another aspect of life and trust, even more generalized, that I want to mention. And a kind of emblematic case for that is chicken sashimi. If you were to try to eat chicken sashimi in the United States, that's tantamount to attempting suicide, basically, because it is so full of germs and everything. I mean, the sheer thought of it horrified me the first time somebody proposed to me that I eat it. But thousands of people eat it daily without any problem. And just the same as with sushi and and other forms of raw fish, this symbolizes a very long chain of trust from where the chicken is produced, where it is sliced, all the people who handle it, never let it go bad. And so that if you think about all the people in the chain between when, when the chicken is produced or when the meat is produced and when it actually winds up raw going into your mouth and you can rely that you're not going to get sick on it, this again is quite unusual in many countries. If you've had experience of trying to eat sushi in say, a fancy hotel in China, you know that even that is quite risky. I found out from personal experience actually. Um, So that is something we don't have to worry about in Japan. And this is part of the social fabric here. Another institution we have, which the New York Times loves to criticize, that one of their reporters went to London School of Economics and always talks about the low productivity of Japan's service sector. Well, actually, it's pretty nice, the kinds of service we have in Japan. Elevator uh, the Ladies who assist you in the elevator, uh, if you've ever bought a gift at a department store in Japan, the service is really exceptional, and it doesn't matter whether you are uh, rich or poor, you get outstanding service. Yes, it's very labor-intensive, but it makes part of life much more Pleasant. In fact, this idea of politeness and courtesy is so ingrained in Japanese culture that even the traffic barriers bow for creating a problem here. This is another common thing you see. In fact, if you go to Singapore, they have sort of imported this idea of people bowing, apologizing for the inconvenience of uh, uh, construction. Because Lee Kuan Yew actually is sort of an admirer of many. Japanese things. But when I was uh, another example along this line is I had gone earlier this year by train to uh, uh, Trento uh, I had to travel by train within Italy and I was really struck looking at the window at these very scary warnings don't throw anything out the window which wasn't an idea that would naturally occur to me anyway (laughs) but the way in which their the way in which they're uh, phrased is quite peremptory, let's say. Whereas in Japan, every sign will have kudasai onegai, will have some kind of please. This is just at a very fundamental level of courtesy, almost invisible, I think, to people who live here, unless you until you travel outside Japan. Um, another element of social life in Japan is uh, well, this is from. Funabashiya, this is the Wagashiya, near my house, actually. And the master is very outspoken about politics. Here he is admonishing the kokai before you start talking about reforming the Constitution. Reform your own heads, he is saying. Um, He doesn't worry, though, that he's going to scare customers away by this. And actually, if on my street you will often see people stopping to read, read his signs, which are often quite clever, they're laughing at them, he doesn't care if he's going to scare people away by expressing these opinions. And in, in fact, he doesn't. The st- shop has been there over 100 years, actually. It's a very long-standing shop. Another aspect of Japanese uh, the daily life, I would say, is matsuri. Here is one, of course, Kanda Matsuri in Tokyo. This is not in some agricultural area. You can see these giant office buildings. This happens twice a year. I've participated in this. Actually, when I first moved to Japan, I was living in uh, Nihonbashi Yokoyama-cho, very tiny neighborhood of nine blocks. And that year was the Kanda Matsuri. And I was a gaijin. I spoke no Japanese whatsoever. But I went downstairs to the manager of our building and say, hey, can I participate in this thing? They rushed around. They got me a very tiny happy and everything. And I helped to carry the matsuri for about half a block because I was taller than most people, and those things are incredibly heavy. And when you're taller, you know, most of the weight is on your shoulder. It was quite an experience. But I, there was no question about including me in that. Another matsuri that I will talk about a bit more is the sansa odori, which is an annual uh, festival in Morioka, very famous for having over 10,000 drummers, taiko drummers. Uh, This is the Miss Miss Sansa section, where uh, kind of the prettiest and most talented women of that year uh, lead the pack. But towards the end, things get much more inclusive. So you see Elvis impersonators, giant rabbits, and other uh, characters also participating. And then later on it's really open to anybody who wants to join in uh, and participate. I'm going to talk a lot more about this uh, a little later on in the talk. Uh, Japan also is very good, especially in Tohoku, at preserving local uh, traditions. So this is uh, kappa no hanakuso. It's uh, nose pickings from uh, kappa. Kappa is a mythological character in Tohoku. It's a cocoa peanut flavor, actually. Uh, But a kappa is a mythological character. Uh, There are many stories about kappa, told in, especially in Tonoshi, which is a a town in Iwate Prefecture. My, uh, My wife, who went to elementary school in Iwate Prefecture, says, actually in school, they would teach them many stories about kappa. The teacher would very seriously give them advice. If you see a kappa who is tired by the side of the road, put some water on the top of his head and things like this. They really try to uh, preserve this local uh, folklore. Tono itself has also uh, tried to, uh, it's passed architectural regulations to preserve older style of architecture, uh, a lot of which has been vanishing actually from cities like Morioka, which also used to have this. Uh, Let's come back to Tokyo, And look at another feature of life, which is associational life in Sumidaku. This data comes from a book by Ogawa, I think it's Ogawa Aichi, um, called The End of Civil Society, question mark. It's an excellent, excellent book. Um, But in it, he's talking about uh, Sumidaku, which he disguises with another name. But out of 220,000 people, there are 164 neighborhood associations, 42 PTAs, 32 amateur uh, sports associations, and the list goes on and on and on, onto a second slide, actually. So many associations just in this one area of 220,000 people in uh, eastern Tokyo. So that is quite a lot. One one thing I will mention also, uh, without a slide, is coordinated action. How many of you were here during the 2011 earthquake? So you may remember the uh, threats or the the concern about brownouts and power outages. And there was one in particular that was supposed to occur about a week after the earthquake and the the Fukushima disaster. Well, it didn't happen. And as we were waiting to find out, you know, for the lights to go off, uh, one of my wife's friends texted her and sent her immediately there was a joke going around that night. Okay. It said, um, well, the government announces that because of a shortage of electricity, there will be blackouts starting the next day, okay. the next evening. In America, the blackout happens and people loot stores. In Germany, the blackout happens and nobody cares because they all have solar power. In, in China, the blackout happens and nobody cares because this kind of thing happens all the time anyway. In France, the blackout happens and everyone makes love. In Japan, after the announcement, everyone works extremely hard to conserve electricity, reduce power, cooperate, and then are all pissed off when the blackout does not happen as announced by the government. (laughs) So that is actually what what happened here. It's tremendous coordinated action, which is obviously, you can tell from the joke, quite unusual. I'll, I'll end this bit with one last metric, which is more typical uh, of what you would find in kind of social science metrics, which is per 100,000 population, Japan has by far the lowest crime rate in the OECD, okay, across every one of these major crimes. So this is quite, um, how do we capture this? How do we characterize this aspect of Japanese society? Well, the fact is that Typical metrics of well-being, whether subjective well-being or on the capabilities approach, paint a very different picture of Japan. As uh, Professor Kolmas was suggesting before, on a subjective well-being basis, Japan's is the lowest in its income cohort, measured vertically like so. It has been... Extremely stable, despite tremendous growth in uh, GDP per capita. I won't say per capita income, even though that's what economists usually say, but at least on that mean, mean income, it's been very, very flat. And that's five times growth in GDP per capita during the same interval. So nothing there. Survey indicators for trust. Social trust are very poor as well. This talks about trust in various uh, institutions across, this is measuring by age group, but you can see it's very low. This is trust of uh, other people, still very mediocre. As far as gender equality goes, Japan is horrendous. It's one of the worst countries in the OECD. Uh, Or one of the worst out of 135 countries, pardon me. It's 101. 102 in economic participation, 110 in political empowerment of women, despite the fact that the Constitution guarantees equal treatment of women. Not that the Constitution means very much. Maybe that's foolish of me. Here was a decision actually by the... uh, the Tokyo District Court also. The really silly stuff. We are really far behind in Japan earlier this summer. that The idea that married women can use their maiden names? No way. Despite the constitutional provision. Work-life balance as well. Only the United States has fewer legally mandated days off. On the OECD Better Life Index... Japan's performance is submediate regarding community, civic engagement, and work-life balance. These two are especially surprising, given all the stories I was telling before. I left out, by the way, about my own Tokyo neighborhood's matsuri that happens every year. Um, on community, Japan ranks number 22 out of 36 in the OECD. On civic engagement, number 22 uh, also, and work-life balance number 34. Is this a paradox? I would say not, because there's something wrong with what's being measured. For one thing, a lot of the features I described in those anecdotes just are not targeted by these surveys. They're not measured. So they're invisible. And more importantly, they aren't seen as anything remarkable by Japanese. Because most of them don't travel very much. Or if they do travel, it's in a fairly insulated way with a tour. Very relatively few Japanese have actually lived abroad and seen how things are for them to realize how truly exceptional the social fabric is in Japan. They kind of take it for granted, actually. Here's an example of what the OECD survey misses for example. When it talks about community, that question is based entirely on whether or not an affirmative answer is given to this question. If you are in trouble, do you have relatives or friends you can count on to help you whenever you need them or not? Culturally, I think at least among the, my friends and family members who are Japanese, it would be very difficult for people to impose themselves on other people. It's The fact that people answer this negatively has more to do, I would suggest, with cultural norms, which is something also I think uh, Professor Kolmas has talked about in responses to subjective well-being surveys. The cultural aspects, do Japanese people, how do they answer? It's quite different from many other people. Perhaps also Koreans and Chinese would have similar constraints. Korea, too, has very came out very low on community with this question. Um, the civic engagement indicator is based on two things. Yes, no answers to various questions on whether the general public is formally engaged to comment on laws and regulations. Of course, that, that also takes on a certain new irony in light of the public hearing that was held on the... Secrets Law yesterday, Um, but already Japan scored quite low on that, and voter turnout also is low. So this counts as no civic engagement. So the, the metrics are given very broad and suggestive names when actually they are based on very narrow foundations and that are not so culturally balanced. So... As a kind of response to this, um, I am using public happiness as a kind of catchphrase for the stuff that these surveys miss, but that seems to exist based on our daily experience living in Japan. That's really the point of this category of public happiness. And the reason I thought of it was I was starting to read about this um, a few years ago, uh, when I was reading some, the work of some Italian uh, uh, economists who were trying to revive a uh, stream of economics that is contemporary with Adam Smith, but that is quite uh, different. Uh, some of these uh, folks, uh, Stefano Zamagni, Luigino Bruni, and many other collaborators are trying to revive interest in something called economia civile, or civil economy, which is, uh, was pioneered by, again, Neapolitan uh, philosophers in the 18th century. I'll be mentioning one of them in a moment, Antonio Genovesi. But the connection between 18th century in economics and public happiness really struck me when I thought back to an incident that had occurred a few years ago. My wife and I were looking to move from Nihonbashi to a new place, which ultimately wound up uh, where we are now. We were in Setagayaku, looking around to find an apartment. And there's a small construction site. And there, was a, there were a bunch of guys working. And then there was a middle-aged woman, also in a worker's uniform. And basically, all she did was to say, hello, how are you? Please be careful here. Watch your step. Have a nice day. And my first thought was, Wow why don't they just have a sign? Or they could have you know one of those animated signs, like a, a robot there. But then as I took a few steps past there, I thought that was really nice, somebody saying hello. It's really a very pleasant part of the day. And she at least, is, it's not a great living, but she's at least earning something from it. We feel better. It feels like a more, we're living in a more civilized place. And it's very nice that somebody thought to have somebody just to really say that or that she, and she seemed totally sincere, not like she was doing it because she was being paid to say it. And I thought that is something connected to public happiness. It is an attitude about how a life in a public space should be. So that was why this term suggested itself to me. Originally, it had a somewhat different connotation, actually. So one of the uh, major theorists, of course, there were, there were French uh, and Italian and uh, English uh, uh, philosophers in the 18th century, Francis Hutcheson and uh, de Chaste and Pietro Veri, who talked about public happiness in a very quantitative, really utilitarian way, very similar to what social scientists do now. Uh, but... These two uh, uh, thinkers, Ludovico Muratori and Antonio Genovesi, had a slightly different spin on it. Muratori's idea of public happiness was very top-down. It was that it, public happiness was the peace and tranquility that a wise and loving prince or minister works to allow his people to enjoy. So it was really something that the ruling people do. But Genovesi had a slightly different phrasing of it. He said, every person, this was kind of, he didn't use the term public happiness for this, but this embodies kind of his idea of it. Every person has a natural and inherent obligation to make an effort to procure his own happiness, but the body politic is not composed in such a way that people actually do this. Therefore, the entire political body collectively And each of its members is obligated to do, insofar as pertinent to its role, everything that it or he knows how to do and can do for the common prosperity, provided this can be done without offending the rights of other civil bodies. Now, technically, if I were going to be a true historian, of uh, intellectual historian, I should consider this in the context of the debates going on in Genovese's time, a lot of which had to do with whether it was okay to get rich, whether it was morally wrong to get rich, and so on. But I'm not an intellectual historian. I'm more of, uh, I'm more trying to propose something in a more activist way now. And this suggests to me this idea of a collective body, it is not only an economic body. It is a political one. And it is an idea of a common good and people working towards a common good. Public happiness has this collective dimension. I would say it's suggested by this, not entailed by it. But it's suggested by this. I'm using it as an inspiration. Don't, uh, I'm not trying to logic chop it. So what I would say in this context, I will use public happiness to denote something that is, involves civility, reciprocity, reciprocity without expectation of getting something exactly back in return. This also is elaborated by Genovese in some of his writings. Solidarity, basic decency, it's something qualitative, doesn't, isn't so easily measured at all. And it is something collective. This part especially is kind of contrary to a lot of the methodology in social science. Not universally, but quite a bit. So I just wanted to point out the three, you know, water, ice, and clouds, they're all the same molecule. If you look at the molecule individually, it's all H2O. Collective stuff makes a difference. How they get together makes a difference. All of chemistry is actually based on collective phenomena because it takes two electrons, one up and one down. If you just looked at one electron, you couldn't get chemistry in all the different things that we see. And need I say more? It takes two to tango, as they say. Okay, so collective phenomena are very common in the natural sciences, in the life sciences, and so on. I don't know why social science has such an allergy to them, but I'm suggesting that public happiness is collective rather than located individually. How does this relate to, let's say, the capabilities approach? Many capabilities are based on methodological individualism, so that's one difference. The capabilities approach style metrics, as we illustrated above, don't capture the kinds of things that I was talking about that I see in Tokyo or Morioka neighborhoods They just are not captured that way. Nonetheless, some capabilities do contribute to public happiness. Health, safety, income equality or inequality, your ability to express oneself. But I would say these, I would relate these to what I'm calling public happiness in a more anthropological and qualitative sense, rather than as something that you measure. I would propose that's how to relate them. Because I really want to keep public happiness as this qualitative collective thing, or what about social capital? Social capital, I think, is even farther away from this idea. It's really economistic. It's an idea of some kind of investment in return. Even though uh, some authors like Lin extended to political and community contexts, it's still in the context of markets. And the question is never asked, why must we think of everything in society in terms of a market? So I want to get away from that. And also, social capital, every author is talking about how to quantify it, how to quantify it, how to quantify it. And again, I I think that gives you only a very limited part of the real picture of life. So now I want to talk about policy, which is really my concern. Policies do matter. Policies can really mess up public happiness. And the point of this little excursion is Many policies are based only on quantitative indicators, or it's felt that policies based on quantitative indicators are superior policies. And the point I'm trying to make here is public happiness is not captured by those quantitative indicators. And when, you, when policies mess with something that is invisible to them, they are likely to mess it up. So what are a couple of ways they do that? Here is Morioka. You can't see it for the clouds. This is the, I'm supposed to use this one now. Yes, I'm supposed to use this mic if I walk around. Um, here, uh, this is the center of Morioka. historically. Across the river, now there are some big box malls that you can only reach by car. As in many regional cities, Morioka has an aging population. A lot of them don't drive or they really should not drive. And Many cities are cl- many uh, shops and amenities are closing here and being relocated to these giant malls outside here. This is really isolating them. But this is done in the name of economic growth. It's done in the name of productivity. A lot of this is farmland and farmers are encouraged to sell the land for uh, non-farming use in order to get more money out of it. There are many reasons in the agricultural policy about that, uh, uh, which I won't go into here. But speaking of agriculture, Um, The idea that agriculture should be opened to uh, foreign competition and we should focus on exports when actually there's a lot of food we don't raise ourselves here. Most of the soybeans that are consumed in Japan are grown outside Japan. Why is that? Why does that happen when people are paid to keep their rice fields uh, vacant? Why should we be trying to make Japan a food exporting country when we actually are already importing a lot of the food that we need here? It's a very crazy kind of policy. Uh, But a lot of it is done in the name of economic growth, I should say, or the idea that uh, liberalizing international trade is somehow helps everybody, especially when it's the United States. Another factor that uh, uh, kind of policy we see quite a bit is the destruction of low-rise neighborhoods in favor of more efficient and expensive high-rise neighborhoods. There's a guy, actually, a Harvard economist, Edward Glazer, who says high-rise living is better than low-rise living. It goes so far as to say that. But actually, this is in, uh, like, Shirokane Takanoa, for example, or Azabu Juban, you can see many of these high-rises, and the neighborhoods are much more sterile compared to say, areas like Kagurazaka and maybe some other areas in Shijikuku even, that still have a real local feeling. Um, another issue is policy. Uh, the idea that deflation is bad and that we should, weaken, we should weaken the yen to improve exports. Actually, exports, the only country where exports make up a smaller percentage of GDP than Japan is the United States. They're only 15% of Japan's GDP. they are about 40% of Germany's. So this argument holds no water whatsoever. Actually, it is tatemai uh, for the fact of improving the earnings of foreign producers, of, of multinational companies who repatriate their earnings. They hire people overseas. They sell things overseas. They repatriate their earnings to Japan and have to state them in yen, like Sony and places like that. Um, so that is really what's going on. It has nothing to do with improving the lives of people. If anything, it creates income inequality, it makes many staples more expensive. Those don't contribute to public happiness. And then in the most literal sense, perhaps, there is this policy that some of you may be aware of, of banning after hours dancing. Okay, Why that is so uh, important for the administration to do is kind of a mystery, but certainly you could see this as a policy that impairs public happiness. So I want to describe um, an illustration of how policymaking can be done quite delicately and quite qualitatively. And the Sansa festival, the Sansa Odori that I showed you some pictures of before is a actually a very good illustration of that because this is a fairly recent festival. The festival began in 1976 and it has a, uh, its origins in a kind of typical growth imperative uh, conundrum. And that was in the 1970s, the uh, plans were projected for extending the Tohoku Shinkansen. And cities were given an option of having a station or not. And the mayor of Morioka, whose name has just flown my memory, the mayor of Morioka, felt very much that Morioka should have a station, but some cities rejected it. So Aomori, Shin Aomori is the name of the station, but Aomori in the north rejected the idea of having a Shinkansen station. But the Morioka mayor felt it was really important to uh, be on there. And in fact, as history came out, Morioka became the northern terminus, was the northern end of the Shinkansen for 20 years or so. Aomori didn't get Shinkansen service until 2010. Uh, for a few years in between, Hachinohe was the uh, northern terminus. But here's the other, here are some other things that the mayor of Morioka was considering. He said, it's first step, have the Shinkansen, but what's going to attract people to come to Morioka? And he looked at festivals, which were big tourist attractions. So in Aomori, There is the Neputa Festival. Maybe some of you have seen this. Very uh, vibrant festival with giant glowing three-dimensional sculptures. It attracts many, many tourists every year. Sendai has something called the Tanabata Festival, which actually is, maybe I'm too much of an Iwate guy, but this doesn't seem very much like a festival to me at all. It's hanging paper. Actually, this festival is also quite new. It was suggested in the 1940s by a paper manufacturer, <laughs> in fact. Uh, but this, is, this festival has a post-war history, um, but it's very pretty. And all over the city, these uh, giant um, uh, flowers or hanging tentacled uh, paper creations are hung uh, during July for the uh, Tanabata Festival. Another feature that the Morioka, so the Morioka mayor was thinking how can we get a festival that competes with these because these are already famous all over Japan. And he said another thing he was worried about was yatai, the the places where you can get food, the uh, tents, because a lot of these were run by organized crime. And he was very conscious of the fact that actually Iwate had a very low crime rate and he did not want to invite organized crime into uh, the town. So complicating matters was the fact that there was a festival, the Sansa dance, but it was very fragmented. These are various. This is again downtown Morioka. Um, these are all different neighborhoods: Odori, Nakano, uh, uh, Skecho. My family lives around in this area. Um, Yamagishi, a whole bunch of different neighborhoods. Each. One, had their own version of this dance. It was held on different days. The music, the tempo, the steps were all different. And what's more, they were run by professionals. The musicians were professionals. The dancers were family handed. The role of dancing was handed down from family to family. It was really kind of a private festival. It was not a religious festival. It actually was a political festival. I won't go into that whole story, it's quite interesting why there is this um, uh, festival, not religious at all. But nonetheless, each neighborhood had their own uh, version of it. So what could he do? So in 1975, the mayor called together representatives from all the neighborhoods. And he said, look, in a few years, the Shinkansen is going to be here. We want to attract people. And the way to do that, I think, is to have a unified Sansa festival and make it something that we can get, pull together everybody to help them participate. And after various auditions, it was uh, the um, tempo and the drum cadence for the dance were standardized to one neighborhood's Yamagishi's, far from the center, because Yamagishi's tempo was the slowest. And it was felt that would be easy for everybody to learn and then each group had a phrase that they would shout out at a certain part. That, the following year, was decided to standardize also. So they standardized the speed of it. They standardized the drum cadence. They standardized the phrase that people shouted. They left some things up to each neighborhood's discretion, the costume and the dance steps. So there still was local variation. And they decided that they would run the festival from basically city hall up the main center of Morioka up to around here. And that is where the, that is the procession of the parade every year. And so 1976 was the first time they did this and there was a lot of opposition uh, from some people like my mother-in-law was is very she's kind of snobby and she said well some people their dancing is like farming but my family came from a more you know kind of uptown area and so she she went she hardly ever goes to see this because she still is in a snit about it uh, but many other people welcomed it um, welcomed this combination so 1976 was the first one Already 38 years. This year was the 38th one. I would say that's a quite successful uh, festival. And the participation, I have a couple of short films. Um, So this, uh, unfortunately, I didn't capture very well how snazzy they were. This is one of the two snappiest bunches. But it's from Homak. Homak is actually one of the giant big box retailers. that are attracting people out of the center of the city. But all, all schools, all uh, major businesses and banks have teams. There are over 10,000 drums played in this procession, which is held on the first four nights of August. It's repeated for four nights. Let's see if I can get a little bit of this. you get a little bit of a flavor. Everybody plays the same drum okay. Little children. These guys were very sharp, but I didn't get them close up enough. So this gives you an idea. I have a couple more, maybe I will skip those, but I'll show you one other. So this is a, this is a team from uh, Nichigin, which is a bank, a Kitagin, which is a bank, Northern Japan bank. And then this, uh, this is a very short excerpt. I just caught them at the tail end, but this, nobody sees this part of the brain. These are just people clowning around. They've got these blowing devil horns on. They're doing this solely for their own amusement. Okay, this is a very, just a very spontaneous, fun little thing uh, for many people. People really have embraced it, and you see lots of, lots of kids involved in it as well. I will say, and I'll, I'll detail a bit more later. This was a very, by the way, no yatai <laughs> at all in this festival. He he kept them out. It's very clean, uh, uh, festival in that way. So I would say this was a very sensitive piece of decision-making. Nothing quantitative about it, nothing was measured, just the idea of how to get people involved, how to perpetuate it, how to make people really love the thing, and it was done very sensitive political uh, uh, qualitative thinking. I believe that in order to preserve public happiness, to make decisions that preserve or enhance public happiness, you need to take a more qualitative approach instead of a metrics-based approach. Uh, That is, I won't demonstrate, I will argue. Um, There are some metrics that are proposed for public happiness, especially by some Italian thinkers or this genuine progress indicator, but that's very one-dimensional, It reduces everything to costs. Um, Pierluigi Porta and his collaborator, I think it's Matteo Scacieri, have some idea of public happiness maximization but it's really, uh, it's so abstract and based on so many mathematical operations that could not be done in practice. It's really not a realistic thing. But all of these schemes involve reductions of qualities to quantities. They require some kind of technocratic bureaucracy to assemble the data. And it requires a technocratic political class to act on the data. These metrics that are based on very esoteric or sophisticated ideas do not empower ordinary people to get involved in decision-making at all. It's very much expert-based. So I have proposed in a book I published last year uh, in Japan that something more a more fruitful approach might be to use heuristics. And these are heuristics that can be applied by individuals who are making business decisions. They can be applied by communities. They can be applied by local governments. This is just a kind of tentative list. There may be much better ones that one can use. But in the book, I proposed these six. Emphasizing quality rather than productivity. Emphasizing durability rather than creative destruction. emphasizing sharing rather than exclusion robustness rather than dependence, reflection rather than urgency, and convivial tools rather than industrial or manipulative ones. I'll explain this uh, most uh, uh, in in a few slides. But very quickly, quality versus productivity. The obsession with productivity masks reduction in quality. Make more things faster, you don't make them as well. It also masks hardships for people. A company becomes more productive when it fires people. Okay, that is often the way productivity goes up. Um, better quality takes more time and more labor, and by quality I mean the impact on community, family, environment, and society as a whole. Durability, not creative destruction. I mean, these are all things that uh, maybe light bulbs there is a better replacement for, but think about Palm Pilot, who uses Palm Pilot anymore? Can you use any of your diskettes anymore? Or my particular, uh, the, my most passionate example here is Mango Carpis, which is really good, but I was only able to find it at my retailer for like two weeks, right? And then it vanishes and replaced by some other strange drink. But it's impossible in Japan if you find something you like to, to find it back on the shelf, right? A, a couple of weeks later. Sharing, not exclusion, means uh, uh, not only economically in terms of more equal distribution of wealth, but also that concept also affects things like intellectual property because a lot of things, uh, a a lot of uh, uses of intellectual property now don't create wealth. They just take money from one pocket and put it into another. If you've ever tried to buy a Kindle edition of an academic book and you see that you might have to pay Uh, you know, Ichimanen for some obscure academic book just for a PDF of it, It's this is what I'm talking about, okay, part of it. Robustness rather than dependence. There is a certain level of, uh, this also has a couple of senses. One is when a network is too connected, it's very easy to mess it up. So this is a blackout in 2003, that affected most of Northeastern United States and parts of Canada. The reason was some trees had grown too big in Cleveland, Ohio. Trees had grown too big and they popped a wire near a power station. And that led to a blackout of the entire Northeastern United States. That is too sensitive. On the other hand, the other picture is of Cuba, automobiles in Cuba from the 1950s that are still running. One of the reasons is, those cars are mechanical. They don't have microchips in them. It's very easy to repair them. There's a wonderful book, uh, I've forgotten the, the, I think it's John Robinson, I've forgotten his name. John Powell, maybe. Uh, it's called The Survival of the Fitter. And this is actually a book about uh, the author's experiences as, de- as a development uh, aide in Ghana, where car mechanics are called fitters. And he talks about how cars that had appeared dead can be revived using bits of coconut shell and all kinds of very uh, simple things because the systems were simple enough to be repaired easily. A car now, it would be impossible to do that with because the, the systems are not designed to be repaired. The, these older cars were more robust in that sense. Also by robustness, I mean... A construction of a network. Um, If we imagine this Big Mikan as the Big Mikan and these other cities as regional cities let's say in northern Japan they're very much dependent on Tokyo and if something were to happen God forbid to Tokyo then a lot of them are going to be very isolated. If there's a giant earthquake here it could have a big impact all over the country not just locally. If we encouraged more local connections then even if something happened to Tokyo, it would be easier for local communities to support each other. This happened, actually, this problem arose during uh, the Jishin in Tohoku, where people are very dependent on Kasumigaseki rather than on their local area. Actually there was a very interesting editorial, by the way, in the Mainichi uh, Shimbun uh, yesterday, I think, saying actually under the new secrecy law it may be harder for local governments to share information. So actually we're kind of moving more intensely into this situation, too. The next one of these heuristics, reflection, not urgency. Urgency is the feeling that you need to act immediately. Again, this has many connotations. Finance, the idea of short-term management objectives, the idea of high-volume trading that makes uh, that arbitrages a microsecond or, or sub-second variations in price, the idea of cost-benefit analysis versus the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle says do things slowly because you don't know stuff. The cost-benefit analysis principle, especially as pushed in the United States by Obama's former regulatory czar and maybe the most famous law professor in America, a guy named Cass Sunstein is, the, the uh, burden of proof is on not doing something. If you have some new innovation, you should do it. If the benefits outweigh the costs, you should show that uh, the be- the costs are bigger than the benefits in order not to pursue some kind of innovation. So it really is biased in, in favor of doing things whose effects you don't know. Another uh, way, another aspect of this principle is no time to form solid opinions. The conflict between uh, Speaking your mind instantly, commenting via Twitter. I mean, politics via Twitter is really a very sad development, I think. No time for reflection. And people are encouraged to do that. And we should reverse it. And the last one is maybe the most sophisticated, or, or, uh, but kind of my favorite among these principles, which is conviviality. This term was uh, brought into English, in this sense, by the late Ivan Illich. Uh, from a 1972 book and in it he defined a tool as any kind of designed service, product, or institution. Schools are examples of tools. So he said a convivial tool is something that can easily be used by anybody, as much or as little as the person likes, for a purpose the user chooses. It allows the user to express her own creativity, and share the results with other people. And it shouldn't require any special certificate or permission to use it or fix it. Like you don't need to have a degree in computer science to fix your folks' volume. It also should not divide people by class. In contrast, a manipulative tool is one that creates its own demand. It's the kind of thing you wouldn't want unless you saw somebody else had it. You say, i got to have one of those. An industrial tool is something where the designers determine how you can use it. And if you want to try to improvise, you, in, you encounter obstacles. The goal isn't necessarily to eliminate these altogether, that's kind of too idealistic, but to get a better balance. Right now, too many of the tools in our society are one of these, and not so convivial. So, some examples. Soccer ball, highly convivial. There's so many ways to play the game. Anybody can do it. This is a perfect example of something convivial. Piano, also convivial. You can play anything on it. Anybody can learn. There is, you do have to learn how to do it. But in principle, there is no barrier to who can learn how to play a piano. A telephone. In some senses, this is convivial also because you can say anything or you can write any message on a telephone. On the other hand, especially in Japan, if you've ever tried to use your iPhone overseas, you know iPhones in Japan or telephones are not so convivial. They are locked to Japanese uh, providers. You have to get a new phone. That makes them very industrial. Um, some of these apps may also be manipulative, not things you really need. Certainly, a diamond-covered iPhone is very manipulative. Okay, Nobody really needs that. Maybe some people will want it if they see other people have it. Google. Convivial in some ways because you can look up anything. Not so convivial because the search results you get are determined by other stuff you've looked for. And their algorithms are entirely unknown and very much are designed to reflect back to you your own vision of the world instead of really opening it up to you. So this is also kind of bimyo. Xbox, same thing. Most Xbox games actually are designed, you have to play within the parameters of the design. So this is a more or less industrial tool. How about school in Japan? In Japan especially, it's quite industrial in a very literal sense. Students are educated to become workers, not really to become citizens. My students, I teach in the hogakubu, of Rikyo University, which is regarded as a fairly good university, at least in Tokyo. And my students, even after they've taken a course on the Constitution of Japan, know very little about it. They know very little about democracy. They're interested in it, but their baseline knowledge is quite minimal. Their main concern is how to get a job. In fact, that's why most of them join the Kabo at all, not because of an interest in law or politics. And Well, need I say more? (laughs) This is certainly not a convivial tool. How many of the... (laughs) And not just because of, of what comes out of it, but also because of who goes into it. In the United States, for example, if you want to run for United States Congress, you have to put up a deposit that varies from state to state. The most expensive state is California, which sets the price, the deposit for running for United States Congress at 1% of the salary. That comes out to around, last time I checked, $1,700 or Junanamanen, uh, roughly. In the state of Maryland, you only have to put up $100 as a candidate for Congress. In Great Britain, to run for Parliament, you put up about 750 pounds, I think. So that's around Juman jumanen uh, or a little bit over. In Japan, under the public office's election law, whether you come from a poor place like Akitaken or whether you come from some wealthy area of Tokyo, you have to put up some $30,000. And the custom is you have to quit your job. And that's even though the campaign in Japan is only two weeks and basically consists of waving your gloved hand out of a quickly moving vehicle. Okay? Unlike the more difficult campaigns in the United States. So who can afford to run for kokkai in Japan? Somebody who's got 30,000 bucks and can quit their job. Mainly it is celebrities, wrestlers, people like that who actually get that paid for them by the party or its families of politicians. That's not convivial at all, and it shows. So just to wrap up and show some practical applications, let's consider the sansa odori first as an example of heuristic decision-making. It's highly convivial. The participation is open. It's no longer limited to professionals. It unites all classes and neighborhoods. It's durable. Because kids are taught it. Actually, kids are taught in school how to do this uh, drumming. So from a very early age, it's perpetuated and encouraged. It is quality, not productivity. If the mayor had wanted a more productive festival, he could have done it like the Tanabata, hanging paper, and saying, you know, we don't have to block traffic, we don't have to take up a lot of time for rehearsals and things like that. Much more productive. On the other hand, of course, in Sendai, they might love Tanabata, and they might feel it reduces quality to change it to a dance. So quality very much depends on local conditions. In Japan, this is pretty much my, my last slide, um, the current approach is to exploit regional and local resources efficiency, efficiently. A new approach, and this is one I would recommend... Uh, There is a school at the University of Florence, uh, led by Alberto Magnaghi and his many collaborators, who emphasize the idea of territory and looking first for resources that should stay. Not things you can exploit economically, but first find the stuff you should preserve, and then think about economic development. Turning agriculture into export. Instead, grow more food locally and organically. Another element of Japanese policy is promote medical tourism to Tokyo and Osaka by rich Asians. This is actually one of Minchito's few growth policies that went into effect. How about putting more doctors in local prefectures? Actually, every prefecture in Japan has a shortage of doctors for local population. Um, Joining the TPP, instead we should focus more on local and more uh, connected networks and then the uh, kokai requirement as I mentioned before. So in conclusion I would say Japan is rich in a public happiness that is not accessed by conventional surveys or metrics. It is a collective and qualitative aspect of happiness unlike the things that are measured and the best way to preserve and encourage those collective and qualitative things is through a more heuristic approach not a metric based approach. And this is my last shot instead of uh, uh, usually a maneki-neko says uh, hello, this one is saying thank you very much uh, in a valedictory way, uh, but this was, uh, we were driving through Kamaishi, one of the cities hit by the tsunami just a few weeks after uh, the tsunami hit, and nonetheless we found out on the street this maneki-neko. It was very, very moving to us, uh, and on that I close this too long presentation. So Thank you. <clears throat>